This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Quote, after two puffs on a marijuana cigarette, I was turned into a bat. After the first cigarette, I felt as if I had wings. I seemed to have great blue wings, and I was flying around the world. So went the testimony of Dr. James C. Munch, a pharmacologist at Temple University and self-proclaimed marijuana expert. Throughout the 1930s, Munch testified at a number of trials for murder and violent crimes, perpetuating a national panic called reefer madness. The idea that smoking weed made users violent, promiscuous, and utterly insane. After a decade of protests, marijuana was nationally prohibited at both the federal and state levels. Until recently, it was widely presumed that the plant is a dangerous drug and gateway to other addictive narcotics. While there are risks in taking marijuana and any drug, the claim that weed is a gateway drug has since been debunked by multiple studies and organizations, including the National Institute on Drug Abuse and Dr. Karen Van Gundy, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of New Hampshire. As for the claim that weed induced violence, the psychology magazine Psychopharmacology recently published a comprehensive study that suggests marijuana suppresses aggression. But the real question is, how new is this information? Marijuana may have been knowingly subjected to a hundred-year smear campaign 
that has had disastrous consequences on the American public, whether for money, power, or politics. It all sounds like madness. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Today's episode is about reefer madness. Reefer madness refers to the madness a user might feel after smoking marijuana. It was perceived to make the user erratic, uninhibited, violent, and insane. The term began circulating in the 1930s and started to refer to the movement sweeping the country calling for marijuana prohibition. It also refers to a PSA film from the 30s that warned about the dangers of using marijuana entitled Reefer Madness. As a result of this movement, marijuana was legally banned in 1937, supposedly in the public's own self-interest. The official story is that weed prohibition laws were passed to protect the American public from a dangerous drug that made its users lethargic, erratic, and with regular use, eventually drove them to insanity. But there are those who would have us believe that four entities stood to gain unprecedented fortunes and long-lasting bureaucratic power through marijuana prohibition. Harry Anslinger, William Randolph Hearst, John D. Rockefeller, and the DuPont Company. Officially, these men worked to ban marijuana and hemp plant out of civic duty. They were keeping America safe from a dangerous drug. Today, we'll be discussing the official story behind the federal banning of marijuana and the nearly 100-year prohibition that followed. And next week, we'll discuss the conspiracy theories that evolved over the past century and how these men may have had less than noble intentions. Children of the 80s will remember Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign in their schools. It would later be replaced by the D.A.R.E. campaign with its iconic black and blood red logo. And their catchphrase, D.A.R.E., to not do drugs. As long as I can remember, we've been told that weed in and of itself is bad. And it supposedly acts as a gateway to other addictive, harmful narcotics like cocaine, heroin, and worse. The 90s and early 2000s were rampant with those this-is-your-brain-on-drugs commercials, which targeted weed as critically as hard narcotics. Even popular sitcoms like That 70s Show perpetuated the stereotype of a pothead, a lethargic burnout with limited options. So where did that start? Great question. At the turn of the 20th century, cannabis was seen as a harmless drug that was sold in every pharmacy in the United States. But by the 1930s, weed was public enemy number one. The side effects of smoking marijuana were seen as a menace to society. This largely came as a reaction to alcohol prohibition. 
the temperance movement saw any mind-altering substance as a threat to the American family and worked to eradicate it. To understand how weed got a bad rap, we need to understand how it was first introduced to the American public. We need to travel back hundreds of years because, surprisingly, hemp, the plant from which ingestible marijuana is derived, is one of our country's oldest crops. The hemp plant originated in China as far back as 4500 BC. It has been with humankind longer than most of our folklore. It predates every world religion by thousands of years. And the hemp plant has a phenomenal range of uses, from ropes to fabric to industrial materials, including sail canvas, primarily used in making ships and sailboats. There are two drugs that can be derived from this plant, cannabis, commonly called marijuana, and hashish. Hashish is made by compressing the resin from the female hemp plant, the cannabis sativa, and is often more potent than marijuana. Hashish is an Arabic word meaning grass, which also gives us some clues as to where it was first cultivated. Cannabis, derived from the similar-sounding Greek word cannabis with a K, meaning hemp, is made from the dry flower buds of the cannabis sativa plant. When it first arrived in the U.S., that bud was known as cannabis, though it's since picked up some colorful nicknames, weed, ganja, reefer, Mary Jane, grass, skunk. Weed may have become illegal in the 1930s, but the first hemp legislation in the Americas was actually passed way back in 1619, when King James required all colonial farmers at Jamestown to grow Indian hemp on their farms. Wait, farmers were required to grow hemp plant? Yeah, everyone was expected to pitch in. Mandatory hemp legislation was also passed in Massachusetts in 1631 and in Connecticut in 1632. The hemp plant was widely used in the colonies for rope, clothing, and other fabrics. Even presidents Washington and Jefferson grew hemp on their plantations. Refusal to grow hemp in the 17th and 18th centuries could land farmers in jail. In fact, hemp was so ubiquitous that farmers were paying property taxes in hemp until the early 1900s. Hemp cannabis was also one of the largest players on the world market. In his book, Common Sense, Thomas Paine wrote, quote, Hemp flourishes even to rankness, so that we need not want cordage, end quote. Cordage, meaning the rope used on sail ships and the like. But hemp was in such high demand, the volume of hemp available didn't temper the cost of cordage in the slightest. During the American Revolution in 1779, Alexander Sinclair, a government-sponsored commissioner authorized to purchase hemp cord with public money for naval ships, wrote to his commander that hemp was being sold for 300 pounds per ton in Virginia. For scale, America's oldest naval ship, the USS Constitution, required 55 tons of hemp fiber to properly rig. Hemp was an American staple and a booming business right up through the Great Depression. Hemp is literally a weed, which makes it easy and cheap to grow, although strains of the plant that are used for narcotics are much more difficult to cultivate than the weed used by farmers. It's still an abundantly easy and high-yielding crop to cultivate. Additionally, cannabis, the drug, not the hemp plant, was commonly sold in many medicinal products in every pharmacy across the country. Cannabis had a lot of perceived uses, 
According to the 1893 Indian Hemp Commission, cannabis was used as an analgesic, which means a pain reliever like Advil, a restorer of energy, and to induce contractions in pregnant women. The Commission of 1893 also credited cannabis with being an antidiuretic, an aid in treating hay fever, dysentery, gonorrhea, diabetes, impotence, urinary incontinence, swelling of the testicles, granulation of open sores, and chronic ulcers. It was also used to treat insomnia and anxiety, protect against cholera, alleviate hunger, and aid in concentration. At the turn of the 20th century, cannabis appeared to be an irreplaceable medical drug. The thing I want to point out is that in addition to being widely used in the 1910s and 20s, cannabis was normalized. These days, it's hard to imagine cannabis without the stigma, but that was very much the case. That's true. It was even regulated like most over-the-counter drugs. In 1906, President Theodore Roosevelt signed the Pure Food and Drugs Act, which required pharmaceutical companies to label all drugs contained in over-the-counter medications, including whether the medicine contained cannabis. At the time, the U.S. was experiencing widespread adulteration of both food and drugs. And as journalists worked to expose bad practices in the food and drug industries, highly organized women's groups pushed for legislation requiring transparency in the way all consumables were manufactured and what ingredients were included in them. After decades of pushing, Roosevelt obliged. It was the first time regulatory legislation was passed involving cannabis. However, it was far from a nationwide prohibition of cannabis, like what would be enacted 30 years later. So, what happened in those 30 years? A man named Harry J. Anslinger. He's known as the grandfather of alcohol prohibition, and he is almost single-handedly responsible for cannabis prohibition in the United States. You might know him by his nickname, the man who declared war on drugs. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to conspiracy theories. 
born in Altoona, Pennsylvania in 1892. Anslinger claims that his abhorrence of drugs started at a young age. In the late 1800s, Altoona was a small, industrious town, with more than half the population working for the rail yard in some way. In 1904, at the age of 12, he recalls being sent to a drugstore to pick up morphine for a neighbor's wife, who suffered from addiction. He said she was shrieking in pain from morphine withdrawal. What also stuck with him was how quickly she could go from a raving lunatic to absolutely calm when the first drop of morphine hit her bloodstream. It left Anslinger unsettled and haunted by the ugliness of addiction. Anslinger began working for the Pennsylvania Railroad at 14. It's rumored that during those early years, while going to high school and working for the railway, Anslinger watched a close friend become addicted to and eventually overdose on opiates. At the time, there were no federal laws regulating the sale of narcotics. According to the Encyclopedia of Drugs, Alcohol, and Addictive Behavior, people got addicted to narcotics by accident. Usually they began taking them as perfectly legal, perfectly harmless painkillers, very responsible doses. But because so many of the drug users were farmers or people who worked with their hands, they took the painkillers so steadily that they often became addicted without realizing it. Anslinger grew up surrounded by manual laborers, so the realities of drug addiction were very real to him. We don't have statistics on drug use in Altoona at the turn of the 20th century. Those studies didn't exist. But what we understand now is that small, rural towns like Altoona tend to see just as much drug use as large cities. And because these are often tight-knit communities, it can seem like addiction is everywhere. Anslinger never graduated high school, but that didn't stop him from entering a two-year program at Pennsylvania State College in business management and engineering. He also volunteered with the American effort in World War I, and entered the U.S. diplomatic service in 1918. He served in Holland, Germany, and Venezuela over the course of seven years. It was in 1926 that his work in Prohibition really began. Remember, Prohibition lasted nationally from 1919 to 1933 and was also largely the result of organized women's groups who championed the temperance movement. Addiction to opiates had already been demonized throughout the United States, and addicts were stigmatized. People thought that opiates had been brought into the country by German agents during World War I and later by Chinese tongs, or secret societies often tied to criminal activities. Like the Chinese equivalent of the Yakuza or the Mafia. There's little evidence suggesting that these groups were directly to blame for the influx of opiates into the American population, but it's an intriguing story, so it spread like wildfire. In fact, we'll discuss the source of that story next week. Even more upsetting, the most common way to treat opiate addiction at the turn of the 20th century was through controlled doses of heroin. Heroin was first synthesized from morphine in 1874, but the Bayer Pharmaceutical Company was the first to produce heroin commercially in 1898. The thought was that heroin would relieve pain in the way morphine did while removing morphine from the addict's body, thus killing their addiction. 
The government quickly realized that their use of heroin was misguided, and in 1923, the U.S. Treasury's Narcotics Division banned all legal narcotics sales in the U.S. The following year, the Heroin Act made the possession of heroin illegal. So, by 1925, the U.S. Supreme Court mandated that all clinics utilizing this method of treatment be closed, and that doctors stop prescribing heroin to opiate addicts. Anyone searching for opiates or heroin had no legal means to obtain the drugs. And so began the black market for opiates, morphine, and heroin, running parallel to the black market for alcohol. At the time, cannabis was still legal, but that wouldn't last long. Anslinger was an advocate for the temperance movement and became instrumental in shutting down a huge hub for bootleg liquor making its way to the United States. After three grueling years of diplomatic service in Caracas, he was transferred to Nassau, Bahamas, the point from which huge amounts of alcohol were smuggled across the border. At the time, the British agents who controlled Nassau were effectively useless in prosecuting the liquor traffickers. Anslinger flew to London to engage in negotiations with the British, drafting an agreement to aid U.S. Treasury officials in shutting down bootlegging at the port. Anslinger was so effective in curbing the influx of illegal alcohol that the U.S. Treasury Department recruited Anslinger to serve on the Prohibition Bureau. A few months after that, the Treasury Department created the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, or the FBN, and appointed Anslinger its commissioner in 1930. Anslinger wasted no time in taking a militant approach to the prohibition of heroin and opiates, and later marijuana. Anslinger opposed education on the realities of drug use, stating that it might encourage youths to experiment. He preferred a more black-and-white, don't-do-drugs approach. It could be compared to abstinence training that is taught in some high school sexual education programs today. He also began propagating the idea that criminals would take drugs to give themselves false courage when committing robberies or even more dangerous crimes. He claimed that these criminals usually became addicts and, as such, menaces to society. Now, there's not much evidence to support the idea that morphine addicts were robbing banks and becoming crazed killers, but outlawing hard, addictive drugs is still in the public interest. After all, heroin is dangerous, and addiction of any kind is a painful, mentally taxing illness that plagues its survivors for the rest of their lives. Anslinger developed a reputation for fear-mongering. He was a master at blaming strings of violent crimes on drugs and telling parents that an entire generation of children was at risk. He coined the term young hoodlums. Because there were few reliable statistics on heroin or opiate addiction available, Anslinger was free to inflate the numbers and cause widespread panic about the addiction epidemic he claimed was sweeping across the country. Stated by the Encyclopedia of Drugs, Alcohol, and Addictive Behavior, Anslinger had a tendency to swell the number of opiate users when he sought an increase in federal, public, or financial support for his war on drugs, and would show that the number of addicts was dropping when he wanted to prove his efforts were fruitful, a tactic he would use his entire career, in fact. 
Anslinger once met with a Senate subcommittee and claimed that the passage of national drug control legislation took the number of opiate and heroin addicts from 1 in 400 to roughly 1 in 10,000. But no found research supports either of those numbers whatsoever. This is not to say that Anslinger purposely deceived the federal government and the public, but his actions here suggest he believed in his cause and was willing to massage numbers if it helped him along. But do you think he was willing to manipulate more than the numbers? A fair question. Dr. Alfred Lindesmith, a pioneer on the sociology of addiction and critic of Harry Anslinger, once concluded that, quote, An analysis of the Narcotics Bureau's survey of addiction suggests that this enterprise may well be a public relations effort rather than a serious attempt at enumeration. Detailed descriptions of the methods employed have probably not been published because it is realized that they would not stand inspection." When you look at the mass hysteria surrounding drugs and drug addiction, It's easy to see how any narcotic that came in Anslinger's line of fire would be easy pickings. But as far as I can tell, cannabis had been legally distributed in the U.S. for decades and had been largely left out of the conversation up until this point. What changed? As alcohol prohibition raged on, marijuana started to be used recreationally for the first time. So the catalyst was, in a word, fun. In the early 1930s, Anslinger was on the warpath. He meant to ban all cannabis in the United States, regardless of its intended use. Conservative members of society came to fear it as an addictive narcotic as a result of Anslinger's campaign. Part of the anxiety over cannabis was the introduction of smoking marijuana for recreational use. After all, these were the years when the idea of alcohol prohibition became law. It's fair to say that Anslinger had a lot of personal experience with drug addiction by the time he was commissioner for the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1930, and might be the key reason why he believed in weed prohibition so fervently. And in terms of speaking his concerns on a national stage, he couldn't have picked a better time. Very true. The long and short of it is, In the wake of alcohol prohibition, which had been enacted for 10 years already, the stage was all set for prohibiting another recreational drug. Especially if that drug was perceived to be as dangerous and disruptive as alcohol and opiates. The only question is, why was cannabis suddenly targeted? At the time, it was an incredibly common drug. Think of it as suddenly banning Advil or cough medication. We've spent a while talking about the politics surrounding cannabis in the 1930s, but we haven't talked very much about the science of the drug itself, which is important because there are a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings. So let's actually talk about the consumption of marijuana. We will be relying solely on scientific studies to deliver this information, Not my opinion, Molly's opinion, or ParCast's opinion. Much like Advil and cough medication, marijuana affects teens much more drastically than adults. And according to Wayne Hall, a professor and director at the Center of Youth Substance Abuse Research at the University of Queensland in Australia, teens who use weed are twice as likely to drop out of school. 
As adults, these teens are twice as likely to experience cognitive impairment and psychosis. So those D.A.R.E. groups were right. Their tactics are severe, but nevertheless, research suggests that teens should not use drugs whatsoever. However, things change for marijuana use in adults. Because marijuana is a controlled substance, we're a little behind on the research. Generally, there are two camps, those who believe that marijuana is absolutely harmless and those that believe it is a gateway drug and immensely harmful. So one of two extremes. Right. Here's what we know for sure. Professor Hall at the University of Queensland negates the idea that marijuana is extremely harmful. But he also believes that the severe scare tactics used to deter marijuana use ended up overcorrecting and fostered this idea that marijuana is completely harmless, something he also finds to be false, by the way. Hall takes a reasonable middle ground on the issue, believing it's about as harmful as alcohol. Studies published in the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology and the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine suggest that people with high blood pressure or heart-related conditions should exercise extreme caution as marijuana use can worsen these problems. Conversely, a report issued by the Mayo Clinic suggested the exact opposite, that weed can decrease blood pressure and help the user relax. According to studies done by the National Academies, smoking marijuana can make you more susceptible to bronchitis, but does not increase your risk of lung cancer. Almost all studies show it can be a pain reliever, and very few studies suggest marijuana use is a gateway to harder narcotics like cocaine or heroin. And surprisingly, a study published in the science journal Neuropsychopharmacology suggests that pot smokers have higher blood flow to the brain and are at a smaller risk of stroke. Here's information that is surprising. A drug called Epidiolex, which contains cannabidiol, or CBD, a cannabis compound known for its medical benefits, is currently being developed and may soon win the approval of the FDA. It is currently being used to treat and in some cases eliminate childhood epilepsy. That is a huge departure from the research provided by the University of Queensland, which warns against adolescent marijuana use. Absolutely. Also, studies have shown that people who are pregnant or showing signs of depression or schizophrenia should not smoke pot. But while cannabidiol is derived from cannabis, it is a different substance with different uses. The hemp plant can be used for a seemingly endless number of products, and we're only just starting to learn its full range of capabilities and distinguished uses. Truthfully, research on marijuana is lacking. This isn't to say that we don't understand the drug. This is to say that we don't grasp the full extent of marijuana's usefulness or its harm. And that is largely due to its restricted access. Until the Marijuana Tax Act was passed in 1937, it seemed as though Anslinger was only aimed at eliminating the recreational use of marijuana. However, soon after the bill's passing, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, or FBN, began making it increasingly difficult to obtain marijuana for scientific studies. And on the off chance a study was allowed, 
Anslinger developed a reputation for only accepting studies that backed up his negative views of marijuana, rejecting the rest as bunk science. For instance, in 1938, New York's Mayor LaGuardia ordered a study on the sociological, medical, and psychological consequences of ingesting marijuana in the wake of the Marijuana Tax Act. The study concluded that there was no proof that marijuana caused violent or aggressive behavior. Letters to American Medical Association proved that Anslinger sought to torpedo this study, which the AMA had called a careful study until this point. Anslinger criticized the AMA for publishing the study in their national journal. Shortly after the letter was sent, the American Medical Association made a quick and public about-face on their marijuana stance, aligning their beliefs more closely to those of the FBN. Hmm, sounds like some classic mob-style pressure being put on the American Medical Association. Perhaps, but let's not get carried away. We've discussed Anslinger's personal hatred for drugs and alcohol, but it's a leap to suggest that his personal vendetta was enough to drive him to launch a war on drugs. It's possible that the fear of literal reefer madness was that severe. That's an interesting point to bring up. Truly, in the early 1930s, there were no reported cannabis addicts in the U.S., nor were there a noticeable number of complaints of cannabis addiction being reported by hospitals or care facilities. But none of that mattered to Anslinger, who went so far as to create his own conspiracy theory about cannabis. To be clear, we won't be investigating this conspiracy theory as it's already been debunked. Now, we've heard a lot of conspiracy theories in our day, and there are few as brash as what Anslinger claimed during World War II. He claimed that Japanese forces had somehow snuck cannabis into America's food and water supply so that Americans were ingesting small amounts of the narcotic almost constantly. He asserted that this made the American public lethargic and stupid, which hindered our war efforts and accounted for why we had not yet claimed victory over the Axis powers. That is ridiculous. Well, now, we have one final chapter to explore in this decade-long battle for cannabis prohibition. The propaganda that would incite one of the longest, costliest, most complicated conflicts in American history. This is how Harry J. Anslinger went from Federal Bureau of Narcotics Commissioner to the man who declared the war on drugs. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to the story. When you think of the war on drugs, you might think of the 1970s. But before Nixon, there were two men who fought tooth and nail for drug prohibition, Harry Anslinger and William Randolph Hearst. Right. Now, we've discussed Anslinger at length, but have yet to speak about his compatriot. It's fair to suggest that without the combined efforts of these two men, marijuana prohibition would have never happened. When Anslinger came to power, he found an advantageous friend in the newspaper mogul, William Randolph Hearst. William Hearst owned a vast media empire. He is the founder of yellow journalism, a type of journalism that is based in sensationalism and crude exaggeration. In addition to being a polarizing publisher, loved by his readers and vilified by his enemies, 
Hearst is perhaps most well-remembered for Hearst Castle, a massive mansion that sat upon Hearst's 250,000 acres of land around San Simeon. It was called the Enchanted Hill. Hearst designed the mansion himself. When he passed away in 1951, the Baroque-style castle was still unfinished, even though it was already comprised of 165 rooms and 123 acres of gardens, terraces, pools, and walkways. Most of the massive complex was designed specifically to showcase Hearst's legendary art collection. It's safe to say that William Hearst had a taste for the finer things in life. His ostentatious lifestyle is legendary. In fact, immortalized by the classic film Citizen Kane, which named his estate Xanadu. His legacy is centered more around his house and a fictional sled called Rosebud than his own personal achievements. And his personal achievements are many. By 1897, Hearst owned two newspapers with a circulation count somewhere north of 18 million. One in four Americans read his paper daily. He threw his weight behind the Democratic Party in print and pushed for war with Spain to liberate Cuba in 1889. He championed the underdog in his papers, in stark contrast to the lavish lifestyle he led. The narrative favored Irish and German immigrants, who largely made up the working class. He championed labor unions, progressive taxation, and often inflated unfounded fears regarding Asian immigration. As though trying to distinguish between hardworking European immigrants and those who did not fit that demographic? Possibly. He also started churning out headlines that attacked cannabis, working in tandem with Anslinger. And at the peak of his empire, Hearst owned 28 newspapers and 18 magazines. That is a very wide reach. It would seem as though he was as concerned about the growing popularity of recreational marijuana as Anslinger. Interesting. Hearst's papers soon became a reliable ally for Anslinger and the government's anti-cannabis crusade. The thing is, most of Hearst's claims were unfounded, and the crimes he blamed on cannabis have all been debunked. But it seemed like no one was able to stop this blatant bad journalism. To quote Chicago Herald-Tribune reporter Charlie Wheeler, quote, We just do what the old man orders. One week he orders a campaign against rats. The next week he orders a campaign against dope peddlers. Pretty soon he's going to campaign against college professors. It's all the bunk, but orders are orders, unquote. His paper once printed, The fatal marijuana cigarette must be recognized as a deadly drug, and American children must be protected against it. But according to official records released by the Center for Disease Control, no person has ever died directly from a marijuana overdose. What this means is that a person who is high on marijuana could have impaired judgment that could lead to harm, much like driving drunk. But unlike alcohol, nobody has ever died from consumption alone. But Anslinger and his cohorts aimed to make people believe that cannabis could drive its users literally insane. He often quoted Dr. Dungyboy, the director of one of the hospitals for the insane in India, who claimed that he observed the mental decline of his patients who smoked marijuana regularly. The idea was that regular pot smoking would make users lose their minds or exacerbate pre-existing mental illnesses. These manic or insane episodes would often lead the crazed smoker to violence. 
Problematically, people who committed murders and other violent crimes began to blame their insanity on marijuana in the hopes of getting lesser sentences. This is also the plotline of the movie Reefer Madness, ripped right from the headlines. Anslinger began accumulating these cases in a collection aptly named The Gore Files. Many of them contained very disturbing, very real cases of sexual assault and murder, needlessly blamed on marijuana. But other headlines are so inflated, they're almost comical. To rattle off a few, lesbian love, woman stabbed to death, Mrs. O'Shannon stabbed to death for not cooperating with lesbian activities. Another, Girl Slayers. Two teenage women in New Jersey allegedly murder a bus driver while in the clutches of reefer madness fail to remember the event. One of the Gore Files became the most sensationalized story of weed-induced violence in U.S. history. It was that of Victor Lasada, the axe murderer. In October of 1933, Police were called to the Lasada residence in Tampa, Florida. Neighbors had been concerned, as nobody had come in or out of the house all day, a huge departure from the family's normal schedule. The police walked into a grisly scene. 21-year-old Victor Lasada had murdered his family, his parents and three siblings, the night before. He had used an axe, which made the crime especially heinous. Victor was discovered in the bathroom, curled up in a chair, clearly suffering a psychotic episode. He claimed that his family was trying to dismember him and replace his arms with wooden ones. Dr. H. Mason Smith with the Florida State Mental Hospital diagnosed Lasada with dementia precox, which is the former name for schizophrenia. Police reports also show that the police attempted to have Lasada committed for psychiatric help a year before the murders, but his parents intervened, stating that they could take better care of him at home. At the time, however, the local newspaper reported that Lasada had been, quote, addicted to smoking marijuana cigarettes for more than six months. What followed next was a media feeding frenzy. When Anslinger heard about the case, he quickly adopted the mantra, quote, you smoke a joint and you're likely to kill your brother, unquote. Newspapers really ran with this story, making marijuana public enemy number one. Hearst's papers wrote stories about crackdowns on non-existent marijuana rings. It's impossible to ignore the ways in which Hearst propped up Anslinger's arguments throughout the 1930s. Throughout the 30s, Anslinger put immense pressure on lawmakers for a federal ban on cannabis. In addition to riling up the public with reefer madness, he also encouraged local and state law enforcement to vie for this legislation. By 1935, politicians began to fear for their jobs, that they would be outvoted by candidates with harder views on weed. They made the decision to seek a federal law even though that would technically infringe on states' rights to law enforcement and trade. By January 1936, Anslinger began holding conferences on what means would best suit that end, a national ban of marijuana and hemp plant. The problem was that when it came to drumming up hard evidence for a national ban, the FBN was falling short. To ban a substance, the government has to prove that it is harmful to the public. As we've discussed, there was little concrete evidence to support Anslinger's claims. 
So much so that at one point, it seems as though the band would be unsuccessful. Desperate to find a way to pass his law, Anslinger traveled to New York later that month to meet with representatives from the Foreign Policy Association, the League of Nations, and the State Department. There, the council devised a way to legally ban hemp plant within the United States without infringing upon states' rights. Essentially, they imposed taxes on hemp plant that were so exorbitant, manufacturers of hemp could no longer afford to grow the plant. Additionally, they made the case that medical and recreational marijuana was addictive and should therefore be banned. They found a doctor named Walter L. Treadway who was willing to testify to the habit-forming nature of marijuana and the potential harm to the user. With Dr. Treadway's testimony secured, a meeting was held in the Treasury Building on January 14, 1937. Fourteen government officials and consultants were in attendance. They worked to prepare a legal definition of marijuana and a legal argument to Congress. That spring, the council testified in front of Congress, and on August 2, 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act was enacted. The act technically only banned the use of recreational weed, but it also taxed the growing, selling, and importation of hemp and cannabis so heavily that it was effectively outlawed in the U.S. Overnight, cannabis was taken from the American public. It was a ruling that would set precedent for marijuana use for the next 60 years. That's the official story. Cannabis was made illegal in 1937 to protect the public from what was believed to be a dangerous, insanity-inducing narcotic. Hidden motives aside, this is still touted by those members of the U.S. government who seek to keep marijuana distribution and use illegal. But we're going to tear that narrative apart and go down the reefer madness rabbit hole. Here are three major conspiracy theories claiming otherwise as to why it was effectively banned. To be clear, we don't endorse these theories outright, but want to investigate them further. Theory number one. Anslinger needed a drug scare to drum up funding for the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and cannabis was a sitting duck. Theory number two, xenophobia was used as a major tool to ban marijuana. Theory number three, William Hurst, aided by the DuPont Company and John D. Rockefeller, worked in tandem with Anslinger to shut down the weed industry, fearing the collapse of their wood pulp empires and pharmaceutical industries. Our second theory is the most complicated of the three, and ultimately the most tragic. Next week, we'll discuss everything major corporations had to gain from the prohibition of hemp and marijuana, and the legacy Anslinger tried to secure. We'll also delve into the ways the targeting of jazz musicians in Mexican communities could have been a vehicle for Anslinger's cause. That's next time. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. And join us next week as we continue our second look at the reefer madness. 
Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Aaron Lamb and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. <laughs>